Welcome to the Mark Driscoll Podcast. To find more Bible teaching from Pastor Mark, visit realfaith.com. Thanks for listening and being a part of Real Faith. And remember, it's all about Jesus. All right, if you got a Bible, go to Romans chapter nine. I just wanna take a minute before we jump in to one of the deepest and most difficult sections of the entire Bible, just to give you a little bit of a good news praise report. Things are going amazing at the Trinity Church. God has been exceedingly gracious and generous and he's done so through you. And I know the whole world stinks right now, but this is the best place to be, amen? Amen. Things are going great here, things are going great here. So just a little bit of a quick update as we head into Easter, which is our Super Bowl and our biggest weekend of the year. It was a year ago this week that we actually closed along with most other churches in the country and across the world. And they were closed for Easter, which was a catastrophic loss for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're really excited to be open and more than full strength this year. What God did during that season though was incredible and supernatural. So we were closed. And while we were closed, we did a lot of work to technology and property, thanks to your generosity. And then we reopened in June and we didn't know what was gonna happen and God knew exactly what was going to happen. We added the uh, Saturday 4 p.m. service, it's already full. So we'll be going to an additional service at 6 p.m. on Saturday night uh, on Easter and we will keep that going forward. We have the two morning services, nine and 11. Some of you may ask, why won't we do more? Well, because the sermons are long and we don't have time for any more services. And if you're new, I hope you pack the snack. It's gonna be the best few hours of your life. Okay, so that's how we do it here. So what's happened then when we reopened in June, we've seen the church supernaturally explode in every single way. Our attendance is up recently as much as 237%. The average church in America is running 36%. We are perhaps the fastest growing church in the United States of America. It's been incredible. And we've seen so, you can clap for that. We have seen hundreds of people become Christians and get baptized. And if you're one of them, we'd love to baptize you coming up over our Easter services, Easter weekend. Uh, Since we reopened in June on just the weekends, we've added 1,500 children to our children's roster. If you add midweek, it's 2,000 little kids like 10 and under, 2,000 little kids have joined our roster. A few weeks ago at a prayer meeting, I said, please pray for classroom space. The next day, the Lord answered that prayer. We've got a 7,000 square foot new building opening up kitty corner to the property that allow us to do students because it's outgrown its space, women's because they've outgrown their space, some additional uh, space for meeting during the week. And also it will give us some additional parking because we, we need it, amen? Uh, if you got any friends, carpool with them. Uh, in addition, God answered that prayer and you've already been generous enough that uh, the purchase of that and also the rental of that and the refurbishing of that is all paid for. So thank you for that. At the same time, As well, I asked you to be praying for the backyard for the kids and we've made some good improvements. Some more kids space is coming and we've got it all set up for swimsuit summer. We're gonna be running water slide park for kids all summer long so that when we tell them that Jesus loves them, they believe us. And all we gotta do is just point to the water slide, hand them a popsicle and tell them that this is practice for heaven. That's how we roll. So thank you in advance. You've already paid for all of that. You've been very, very generous. I also asked you at the prayer meeting recently to pray for a studio. And literally that week, God provided a custom built television production studio that will allow us to send out more Bible teaching than ever. We close on it, Lord willing, this week. I wanna thank you in advance. We paid cash because we don't do debt and you've been very, very generous. So I just wanna say thank you. 
So here's what we've got going on. We've got Good Friday coming up and Easter coming up, two Saturday night and three, I think it is Sunday morning services. It'll be our biggest weekend of the, of the year. We're throwing a huge carnival outside for all the kids. We're advertising on a lot of different media outlets and we're seeing more Bible teaching going out than ever. Just recently, I'm on Sirius XM. I'm locally on a Salem station, also on Pray.com and Pray.com radio. And in recent months, we've seen as many as 10 million sermons listened to a month from the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona as a worldwide headquarters for Bible teaching, amen? And so I just wanna say thanks. So lastly, here's what we've got going on. We've got a special offering between now and Easter. We're calling it All Things New. And uh, what we're raising money for would be a park out front so that people have a place to mingle, finish the parking lot, counseling center, and also start to work toward multi-site and another campus, perhaps on the Northwest side, be in prayer. We don't have all of those numbers yet, but we're fundraising toward it. You've already been so generous. We've knocked out a lot of other things previously. And we have a $530,000 matching gift. Every dollar you give between now and Easter gets doubled up to $530,000. And I gave you a large number and we're already two thirds of the way there with a few weeks to go. We're within striking distance. God is incredible. And let me just tell you, it's really nice to be your pastor. It's just it's so fun. People are like, how are your people? They're the best. Our people are the best. Our people are the best. And so as your pastor, not everywhere in America do they get to stand up and say, God's awesome. You're awesome. It's awesome. But that's the report. Okay. And I believe it's in large part because God honors and blesses his word. And I believe if we're under the word of God, we're in the place that God is most likely to bless. And so if you are new, uh, we're in Romans 9, and I've got a free book. Uh, you can go to realfaith.com, and uh, we'll give you a free digital copy. If you want a hard copy, give a gift of any amount, we'll send it to you. There's also a free study guide. You can get the uh, e-version online at realfaith.com or pick up a hard copy on the way out for free. Uh, these are ways that I wanna help you learn God's word, and it's my favorite thing to teach God's word. I love it. And this week, I have got one of the most difficult texts in the entire Bible. We're gonna talk about predestination, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and homosexuality. So you're all, if you're not offended, just wait, it's coming, okay? And so, and I just wanna thank in advance all the social media platforms for banning me in Jesus' name. I'll pray and we'll get into Romans chapter nine. Father God, thank you that I get to pastor these dear people who I love with my whole heart. And God, I thank you that they make it really easy to love them, really easy to lead them and really easy to like them. And God, we wanna be under your word. We wanna be obedient. We wanna hear from our father and we wanna be faithful sons and daughters. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to guide and guard our time together as we open your word. We pray you would open our hearts and minds so that we can understand your word and love Jesus in whose name we pray. All God's people said, amen. amen. All right, we're in Romans chapter nine. And what happens in Romans chapter nine and 10, Paul is telling us how we have a relationship with God. And you may not know this, that God had you in his heart and on his mind before he made the world. That God knew that you were coming and he knew that you would be sinning and he knew that he would be saving. And God had this eternal plan for you that he implemented in history. Knowing this in Romans 9 and 10, Paul anticipates five questions or objections and he answers them. This week we'll deal with number two and three and we'll deal with the rest in ensuing weeks. And the question is this, is God unjust and or unfair to not choose everyone for salvation? If God chooses and some go to heaven and some go to hell, 
is it wrong of God not to choose everyone? So let me start with two stories from my childhood to sort of set this up. Uh, when I was a little kid, I went to a birthday party and uh, it was one of the first birthday parties I remember going to as a kid. And a friend of mine was opening their presents and they had a, a younger brother who was watching them open the presents. And you could tell that the younger child didn't understand how birthdays work. On birthdays, who gets a present? Just the birthday boy or girl, not everybody. Not everybody, okay? And so the little kid didn't understand because their bigger brother was opening the gift and they kept opening gifts. And the little kid is thinking, this is not fair. How come they get all the gifts? So at one point, the younger kid grabbed one of the gifts. So that's a socialist. Grabbed this other kid's <laughs> gift. Okay. Grabbed the other kid's gift and said, that's not fair. Was that unfair that they didn't get a gift? No, because it's not their birthday. It's not their birthday. On another occasion, I was sitting in class, public school, sitting next to a kid who for sure was not gonna be the valedictorian, <laughs> was not doing well. And sitting next to that kid was a gal who was for sure gonna be the valedictorian, really smart girl. She always won the spelling bee. The rest of us, we didn't even try. <laughs> So she finished her work early on a test and went to the bathroom and she left her test and the kid who was not the valedictorian took her test, put his name on her test. He was a politician. And then, <laughs> and, and then he put her name on his test and, and he turned him in. The teacher graded the test and then the girl got the test back realized it was not her test. She said, that's not fair. Is that true? It was not fair. It was not fair. See, something is unfair or unjust when you've earned something and it's taken from you. She had earned that grade. It was taken from her. It is not unjust or unfair if you don't receive something that you don't deserve. The little kid with a birthday present, they didn't deserve a birthday present. It wasn't their birthday. Just because you don't get something doesn't mean it's unjust or unfair. It all depends on whether or not you were owed it or whether you have earned it. That being said, we're gonna jump into Romans chapter nine, starting in verse 14. Here's the first question. Uh, is God unjust to choose some people for salvation and not others? Okay, let me tell you this. Some people are going to heaven, some people are going to hell. Some people told me, they're like, I don't believe in hell. Well, you will. It's, it, we all will. Some of us are just a little earlier to the learning. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is that unjust? Is it unjust? What? By no means. For he says to Moses, we're gonna go to the Old Testament, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not not on human will, not on works, not on religion, not on morality, not on performance, not on karma or exertion, but on God. You're saved by God. You're saved from God. You're saved to God. You're saved for God. If you see a theme there, it's about God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, God in the Old Testament will deal with him. For this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills 
and he hardens whomever he wills. Okay, what he says is this, salvation is nothing that you earn or even contribute to in any way. This has been one of the dominant themes of Romans all the way up until this point. And what tends to happen is we think, okay, God did his part, what's my part? Well, let me tell you this, your part is sinning, his part is saving. See, we contribute the bad news, the sinning, he contributes the good news, the saving. And within this, the way that God brought the world into existence is something called ex nihilo. In Genesis, it says that God made the world. It says in Hebrews that he made the world out of nothing. What does God need to do something? Nothing. The way that God forms creation is the way that God forms salvation. He needs nothing. He brings nothing. He brings it himself. Meaning when God created the world, he had nothing. He brought everything out of nothing. When he saves, you bring nothing. He brings everything. Now, some people will say that this is too easy to believe. I think it's very hard because it requires humility. It's saying, I come to God with my hands empty and I receive a gift called salvation. I don't come with one hand full to participate or contribute or two hands full to earn or merit. It's a gift and I receive it as a gift. You and I contribute nothing. This is the difference between works-based and grace-based belief systems. And works-based release systems, your, your karma is that you die, reincarnate, pay off your debt. Or you go to purgatory and pay it back. Or your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. In Christianity, you do nothing, Jesus does everything. And you're not saved by your works, you're saved by his works. And your works don't contribute to his works because Jesus plus anything ruins everything. It's only always totally exclusively the work of Jesus. And he's gonna use a few case studies here. The first is Egypt. And he goes all the way back to the Old Testament book of Exodus. And what he says is there's this guy named Pharaoh. Well, Pharaoh was the ruler in Egypt. Let me give you the backdrop of Egypt. Everything that God creates, Satan counterfeits. God is creator, Satan is counterfeiter. God has a kingdom and then Satan counterfeits it with different nations. And the Bible will call this a world system. This is where economics, politics, religion, spirituality, ideology, education, all comes together into one unified system. In the Old Testament, there's places like Babylon. We looked at that last year when we went through the book of Daniel. It includes in Paul's day in which he's writing, the nation of Rome. It existed in the Old Testament in a nation called Egypt, and it still exists today, even in places like America. Places like America, where everything is working together against God. Everything is working together against God. The most powerful nation in the days of the Old Testament was Egypt. And it was ruled by a king called a Pharaoh, and he was literally declared to be the son of the gods. So it was a counterfeit. So ultimately in their family, uh, their kingdom was to replace God's kingdom and the son of the king was to replace Jesus Christ, the son of God and the king of kings. It was all a demonic counterfeit. And what happens in this, the book of Exodus records the conflict between God's kingdom and this counterfeit kingdom. Over the course of 40 years, it is the recording of the most supernatural activity in all of human history. And so within this, um, it's this conflict between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. It's ultimately this conflict between the real God and the false God. It's this conflict between that which is spiritual and of the Holy Spirit 
and that which is demonic and counterfeit. And so God's got real leaders and rulers and Egypt's got counterfeits. There's real priests and there's pagan priests and there's angels at work and there's demons at work. And ultimately these kingdoms are in collision and conflict. This continues in every single age, including our own. It's why right now, if you come against God, you will get boosted on social media. And if you come in the name of God, you will get throttled on social media. It's all spiritual and it's kingdoms in conflict continuously. And so what happens as well is that there are miracles and counterfeit miracles. Just because there's power doesn't mean it's God's power. It could be counterfeit and demonic power. So these two nations are in collision. And the ultimate fight is between this Pharaoh and the real God. And the fight is over who the real God is. So what happens in Exodus chapter five, verse two, the Pharaoh who ruled and reigned as King of Kings and Lord of Lords and was worshiped as God. And he's the fake Jesus on earth. He says this, God shows up and God speaks and says, you are not the real King, I am. Your kingdom is not the most powerful, mine is. You don't get to tell my people what to do. Only I get to tell my people what to do. And while I'm at it, I get to tell you what to do. Well, the demonic, counterfeit, unbelieving king and kingdom was very unrelenting. So the Pharaoh says this in Exodus 5 too. Who is the Lord? Who is this God I never heard of? See, because what Pharaoh thought was, I'm powerful, God's people are powerless. I'm the king and they're the slaves. Their God can't be bigger than me. I rule over them. He's like, who is this God I've never heard of? that I should obey his voice. Why should I let God tell me what to do? See, Pharaoh's an American. (laughs) I'm my own person, I'm my own authority. Nobody can tell me what to do, okay? So ultimately, it continues. Why should I obey his voice and let the people go? He says, I do not know the Lord. Ask you friends, do you know the Lord? goes on, and moreover, I will not let the people go. So here's the conflict. The Israelites are God's children. The way the story worked, at the end of Genesis, there was a famine and there was a season where God's people were in desperation. So they relocated and they took refuge in a nearby nation of Egypt. At that time, God had raised up one of his sons, a man named Joseph, to rule and reign in Egypt as a result the remainder of his family and God's people, the nation of Israel, they were welcomed. They were welcomed into the nation of Egypt. They were there for about 400 plus years, upwards of 440 years. By the time you go from Genesis to Exodus, just those two books of the Bible, there's more than 400 years of a gap. And it says in Exodus that a king rose up who didn't remember God's people, the family of Joseph. And what happened was God chose his people. He said, I make a decision. These are my kids, I'm adopting them. I'm their dad, I love them, I'm gonna bless them. As a result, they went from a nation of like 60 some, 70 people to a nation of millions. You need to know that that's why we are pro-life because ours is a living God. And we wanna birth people who love Jesus so that they are witnesses to his goodness in the future. This is why Satan is always trying to eradicate human life because God is always trying to multiply human life. 
And so what happens is this family becomes a nation of millions. This other Pharaoh rises up and what he realizes is these people could be a great economic opportunity. If I took all of their personal property and possessions, if I enslaved them, if I abused them, I could really profit from them. So God made a decision that these were gonna be his people. Pharaoh and ultimately Satan through Pharaoh makes a decision that he is going to control, use, abuse, enslave these people. And now the conflict is, will it be God or the Pharaoh and ultimately Satan working through the Pharaoh who will win this conflict? That's the fight, that's the fight. And so when God sends Moses and says, let my people go, Pharaoh says, I don't know who you are and these are my people, not yours. And God says, then here's what I'm gonna do. I'm going to set my people free and I'm going to use Pharaoh as a statement to all of human history of who I am and who everyone else is. And so what you have here is you have a collision. It raises the issue then of Pharaoh's hard heart. How many of you, so how many of you are Christians and you've, you've heard about this? How many of you have argued about this? In Bible college, it's required. You argue about this for the first year. So God's gonna, God's going to crush Pharaoh and redeem his people. It's a picture of eternity. King Jesus is going to come back. He is going to crush everything that is in the world and he will liberate his people once and for all. The question is in the meantime, what about Pharaoh's hard heart? So here it is. He mentions the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. About 20 times in Exodus, it speaks of Pharaoh's hardness of heart. About 10 times, it says that God hardened his heart. About 10 times, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Just show them to you. God hardened Pharaoh's heart, there's the 10 times. Pharaoh hardened his own heart, there's the 10 times. So it's a tie. Okay, so there's a couple options. Um, some people would say, well, God hardened his heart. We would call them Calvinists. There's like, God hardened his heart. Others would say, no, 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 he hardened his own heart. We call those Arminians. And some people would say, it says both. We would call them Christians, okay? So if you're a Christian and you read both, what you don't wanna do is say, I'm gonna take these verses, not those verses. All the verses go together, okay? All the verses go together. So here's what we learned from the story. Number one, let me ask you this. Did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Yes. Okay, let me ask you another question. Did Pharaoh harden his heart? Yes, okay, so. How many of you are like, this is like a fortune cookie. I'm not sure what to do with this, <laughs> okay? Some would misrepresent this and they would see that God hardened his heart and then punished him for having a hardened heart. Do you could see where that would raise that question of injustice, injustice. This would be like a dad shoving a kid, the kid bumps the table, the milk falls over and then the dad disciplines the kid for spilling the milk. You're like, that's not just, that's abusive. You made that happen. How can you punish for what you caused? Do you see the problem? So ultimately the question is not, did God harden Pharaoh's heart? But how did God harden Pharaoh's heart? And it's very important because it's ultimately connected to our view of God. If you think God is just mean, capricious, that he's haphazard, random, cruel. Number one, that's a God you're going to run from, not run to in your time of need. 
In addition, it encourages you to treat other people the way that you think that God treats you. Men who think that God is controlling, distant, a bit mean, cruel, capricious, non-relational and dangerous make horrible husbands and fathers. And sometimes they will even quote verses out of context, of course, saying, well, that's how God is, so that's how I am. Well, the truth is you may not fully understand who God is, therefore you don't understand how you should be. Also in the book of Exodus, God tells us exactly who he is. It's in Exodus 32, and it is the verse in the Bible that is quoted more than any other verse in the Bible. You know what that means? This is the verse that God keeps highlighting. And it's him telling us exactly who he is. It says this, excuse me, it's Exodus 34, verses six through seven. The Lord proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God, first thing, merciful. Second thing, gracious. Next thing, slow to anger. Is God a long-wick God or a short-wick God? Long-wick God. He doesn't wake up angry. You gotta get him there. And you can. Abounding in steadfast love. You know what that means? Bottomless well of love. And faithfulness. You can trust him because he's always faithful. The Bible says, even when we're faithless, he's faithful. You really can't depend on anyone or anything to the same category and degree. You can depend on this God, he's totally faithful. That's why if you love Jesus, you die with a smile. Amen. You're gonna be all right. Goes on, keeping steadfast love for thousands. He's real generous with his love. Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. He'll forgive anyone for anything. And he's gonna do that through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, who prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them, and then died to answer his own prayer. But, here's the end, who will by no means clear the guilty. Here's what God says. I love people, I'm super patient, I'll forgive anybody for anything, but, there is an end to my grace and there is a beginning to my justice. Okay. So when God tells us who he is, then we need to look at the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in light of the character of God. Two questions again. Did God harden Pharaoh's heart, yes or no? Yes. Did Pharaoh harden his heart, yes or no? Yes. How did he do it? Through, through love, through grace, through mercy, through compassion, through patience, okay? Because in the book of Exodus, God raises up Moses as an intermediary and as a spokesman and as a prophet. 10 different times, 10 times, God says, Moses, go tell Pharaoh, let my kids go. And if he doesn't, tell him there's gonna be a plague, which is a consequence, a punishment, and each of the plagues is going to be more painful. I'm going to continue to increase the cost to encourage him to obey me. 10 times, 10, 10 times, 10 times God sends Moses. Uh, Pharaoh, the real God tells you to stop enslaving and abusing his kids. He really loves those kids. And, and my father doesn't like you hurting his kids. 
So he's telling you that if you don't let the kids go, here's the consequence that will ensue. Okay, back to our question of injustice or unfairness. Is this unjust on God's behalf? No. 10 times the plague comes, just like God said, because God's faithful. He's not only faithful in his grace, he's also faithful in his justice. If you don't do this, then this will happen. You didn't do this, therefore it's going to happen, and it does happen. It culminates with the final and worst plague, which is the killing of the firstborn. Pharaoh, if you're gonna hurt my kids, you're gonna see hurt come to your kids. You have reaped what you have sown, right? God will not be mocked, the Bible says, we will reap what we sow. If you keep hurting my kids, this is going to affect your kids. And Pharaoh refuses. And as a result, death comes to the firstborn, in, the firstborn male son in every household. The only exception are those whose doorways are painted with the blood of the lamb, that ultimately the people who had faith that Jesus was coming as the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, they went into their home, they sacrificed a lamb. We now know it is Passover. This is where Passover comes from, from our Jewish friends. And they would confess their sins. They would have the lamb without spot or blemish showing the sinlessness of Jesus as their substitute. They were demonstrating faith in his coming salvation. They would then paint the doorposts of the home because our faith is to be something that we practice at home and something that we display publicly. Nobody gets in much trouble for being a faithful believer at home. It's when you go public that you get some problems. And then what happened was that death came into the nation and it literally passed over every home that was covered by the blood of the lamb because God gave them an opportunity to be spared and to be saved. And as God's children are ultimately liberated from Egypt, it says that some of the Egyptians came with them. There were converts who worshiped their God because our God is loving and gracious and kind. And anybody who turns from sin and trusts in him will be saved. Let me say this, um, God sending Moses 10 times with 10 plagues. We tend to look at this from the perspective of the Egyptians. And what happens is we get very judgy about God. Oh, God's mean, God's cruel, God kills people. God's, God in the Old Testament is very dark. It's very, it's very sad that it's so primitive. I look at it from God's perspective. Let me tell you this, in as much as possible, always look at it from God's perspective. In a world that's like, what about sympathy and compassion and empathy? It's like, okay, let's give some to God. In a world where everybody's like, social justice. I'm like, what about cosmic justice? Like if we all wanna get the wrongs made right, doesn't God have that same right? I'm a father, I got five kids, I love them with all my heart, all my heart. If you were holding my kids hostage, abusing them and enslaving them, I would not come ask you to kindly let them go 10 times. <laughs> How many dads are with me? You're like, I'm gonna watch a Liam Neeson movie, I'm gonna take notes, I'm gonna take notes. Then I'm gonna watch Rambo, I'm gonna take some more notes. And we're gonna do one visit. That's what we're gonna do. <laughs> Late at night. <laughs> 10 times. God is more patient than we are. God is more gracious than we are. God is more loving than we are. God is better than we are. We have no, we have no right to judge this God. 
God has every right to judge us all. So the way that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, love, grace, mercy, kindness, patience, compassion. Pharaoh, you're not God. You're not the Lord of your life. You're not a good person. You're a sinner. There's a real God and he has a real problem with you, but he's willing to forgive you. You need to repent to him. You need to apologize to him. You need to submit to him. You need to surrender to him. That made Pharaoh's heart harder and harder and harder. Do you know somebody like that? The the nicer God is, the harder they become. How many of you, you have someone who has just decided that they're your enemy. Everything you do just makes it worse. You're like, I love you. I hate you. Don't say that. You're like, okay, okay. What can I do? Nothing. Okay, okay. What can I say? Nothing. Well, here, here's a gift. I'm sorry. I want to fix it. No, now I'm declaring war. When someone has decided that they're your enemy, everything you say and do seems like an act of war. And some people take this disposition toward God. God's like, I love you, harder in heart. I'll forgive you if you just admit you're wrong, harder in heart. I'm being patient, but my wick will burn to its end. Hardness of heart. The Puritans used to have a line. They were Christians some years ago. They said, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. See, the, the, the son of God's love and grace and mercy and forgiveness, if you have a tender heart, it melts your heart. If you have a hard heart, it bakes your heart. We all live in the desert, right? We all know what this looks like, right? You put some clay out in the sun. And if you're new, many of you are new, June, July, August, I'm just telling you, we call those the beast, the false prophet and the antichrist. Those months, they unleash hell. People say, it's a dry heat, so's hell. It's still not comfortable. (laughs) But we all know what baked clay looks like, right? Some people's hearts are like that. More love, more grace, more mercy, more forgiveness, more patience, just bakes and hardens the clay, okay? So what this means is God hardens his heart, but God is good, Pharaoh is bad. And it's God's goodness that exposes Pharaoh's badness. Okay. He's gonna say this a little bit later in Romans 12. Bless those who persecute you. God did that with Pharaoh. Bless and do not curse. God blessed him, gave him time, gave him opportunity. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far it depends on you, live peaceably with all. God keeps sending Moses, hey, Pharaoh, we can have peace here. We can all have peace. There is a way of peace. There is a prince of peace. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. And the the children of God did not do that, but leave it to the wrath of God. God did pour out his wrath and avenge his children. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. That's coming up in Romans chapter 12. What God does is exactly that with Pharaoh. He just burns coals on his head. Love, grace, mercy, kindness. Because here's the deal. An unhealthy person hates healthy things. An unloving person hates love. 
An unforgiving person hates forgiveness. An ungracious person hates grace. Question, we talked about Pharaoh's heart. How's your heart? How's your heart? How many of us really, we're just a little Pharaoh. The only difference between Pharaoh and us is resources. <laughs> right? You've got your house, he had a bigger house. You got the people that you boss around, he just had more people that he got to boss around. You have judgments of God, and he just had more judgments of God. He wouldn't do what God told him to do, and you're not gonna do what God told you to do. He told us this earlier about some of our hearts in Romans 2.5. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Let me tell you this, friend, if you don't know Jesus, you have a hard heart, and there is a day when God takes you down, just like he took down Pharaoh. And so we are here to tell you that the wrath of God is a real, real problem. It's actually your greatest problem. And you're in no position to judge God, that God is in every position to judge you. And the good news is that he judged us at the cross of his son, Jesus Christ, that he died in our place for our sins as our substitute and our savior. And that if we would give him sin, he would give us his son. And that God loves to give people new hearts, hearts that melt with his grace and his love and his mercy. And if you're a Christian, this is the miracle that God has done in you. And if you're not yet a Christian, this is the miracle that we're praying that the God of the Bible, the Holy Spirit would do in you. That ultimately it's a heart issue. Now, if you would have asked Pharaoh in that day, he would have had a lot of reasons and excuses why he hated God and all of them were wrong, just as yours are, just as yours are. God is not unjust. God is loving, gracious, kind, merciful, and compassionate. But just as he destroyed the nation of Egypt, he will destroy all the nations of the earth. And one day his wrath will come and his grace will have come to an end. And so this is the day where you make the most important decision you'll ever make. Do I receive Jesus? Do I recognize my sin? Do I reject being the Pharaoh of my own life? Setting up my own little kingdom, making my own little slaves and rendering my own little verdicts. And will I submit, surrender and serve the King, the Lord Jesus Christ? The next question that he has is, is God unfair to save some people and not others? The first is more of a judicial legal. The second is more of a personal and emotional question. Again, there are five questions. We'll deal with these two this week and we'll continue next week. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? If God chooses, how can he blame us if we weren't picked? But who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? See, we're immediately all offended because we're Americans. I'm very smart and my voice needs to be heard. Nah. What will, it, will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay, or the clay, to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience Vessels of wrath, God's been super patient, prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, those would be the believers, for which he has prepared beforehand for glory. God chose you before the foundation of the world. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, 
but also the Gentiles, that's the rest of us. As indeed he says in Hosea, he's gonna quote some Old Testament scriptures. These are all in the sermon notes. This is in the study guide. This is in the free ebook. All my nerd friends, it's all there for you. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. God's like, I'm gonna adopt some kids in my family you weren't expecting. And her who, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a lot of physical descendants, only a remnant of them, spiritual descendants will be saved for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts, the God who rules the angels and demons had not left us offspring, we would have become or been like Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, let me just unpack all of this. There's a lot here. What he's saying is God judges people, but people have always felt free to judge God. So there's only, there's only two ways this works. God judges you or you judge God. Right now, true or false, in our world, there's a lot of judging of God. Made a male and female, nah, spectrum. Marriage is a man and a woman, nah, disagree. Well, there are laws that are incontrovertible that rule over all times, cultures, and people. Oh, we disagree. Laws are relative and morality is relative. Well, only Jesus saves. No, no, all the religions save. You're a bad person, I'm a good person. We're judging God all the time. We're judging God all the time. The truth is either God judges us or we judge God. And the truth is if we judge God, eventually God comes and judges us for judging him. So our judging only goes for a little while. His judging goes forever. You need to know that. You've been lied to. I love you. My volume is not anger, but it's passion. You're not the center of the universe. You're not the highest authority. You're not born good and right. You don't deserve heaven, but hell. You are not irreplaceable. You are not a snowflake. You are not one of a kind. The world is not a better place because of you. The nations were not anticipating your birth to make it all better. You're the problem. And so am I. Now you're, you're more aware of that. <laughs> but it's true for all of us. See what we've done, we've replaced God with us. I'm good. I should be able to judge. I deserve things. It's a good thing I'm here, I'm part of the solution. No, we all need God. And God doesn't need any of us. And we all owe God and God doesn't know any of us. But if you start with you in the center of human history, there's no room for God. If you start with God in the center of human history, it's amazing that he adopts you and puts you on his lap like a dad who adopted a kid. The second thing that he says, when he says this, he's talking about potter and clay. What he's saying is if God makes people, God gets to decide what happens to the people. And we get offended with this, but let me say this. Everybody believes in predestination, meaning that destiny is predetermined. The thing is, we just don't like God predestinating. We'd like to be the predestinating ones. 
So we're like, I don't want God to decide. I want to decide. We all believe in predestination. We just disagree as to whether or not God is the best one to make those decisions. That's why some of you, you got wayward kids that are prodigals. You're like, I don't like God choosing. I'd like to choose. You're not God. We need to trust him for ourselves and for others. You know, for me, this has great practical implication. It just comes to mind. We have five kids. We had a miscarriage in the middle. My kids came to me, they're like, dad, what happened to the baby? I said, you know what? God decides. All the kids smile. They're like, oh, good. Why is it that God deciding is something that we struggle with as if we could do a better job making decisions? I don't know about you. All the problems in my life have this one variable. I was involved. All the rescuing in my life, that wasn't me. That was God showing up to save me from me. Why why do I think that I could save me? I need God to save me from me. When he talks about the potter and the clay here, I've got it in the notes. Sometimes it refers to individuals, sometimes to nations. There is a debate there and the Old Testament uses it either way. The point is this, God can determine what he wants to do with people or entire groups of people. He's free, God's free. He then goes on to talk about Hosea chapter two, verse 23 and chapter one, verse 10. And what he says is, there were people that were not my people. I made them my people, kind of shocked us. And he says, people that I said, I don't love them. Then I said, you know what? I love them. What this shows is that if God chooses, you and I will be shocked at some of the people that get saved. Like us, how many of you were shocked that God said, you're like, I'm not kindling. That's amazing. Let me tell you why this is loving. In love, God saves people from all nations. That's what he's saying here with the Gentiles. Most religions, one God only cares about one group of people. So every people group has their own God. Because God is creator of heaven and earth and ruler over all peoples, he saves people from all nations. The great vision in Revelation is people from every language, tribe, tongue, nation, they're with Jesus because it's true. God loves the whole world. It's amazing. In addition, God can even save the unborn. The greatest cause of death last year was not COVID, but it was abortion. And the most dangerous place to be was not church, but a womb. And the question is, since we've had a Holocaust on human life, what happens to all those children who are made in the image and likes of God, that they're knit together, wonderfully and fearfully made in their mother's womb, given a name and a destiny, as John the baptizer was even filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb and given a name, what happens to them? Some would say, well, they need to grow up, they need to hear about Jesus, and then they need at the age of accountability to make a free will decision, none of which is in the Bible or unicorns or transmissions, none of it's in there. (laughs) Or God chooses. What that means is when Jesus says uh, that the kingdom of God was made for little children, he may not have been using hyperbole, but prophecy. If God can save, well, you know what? If they need to grow up and choose Jesus, they didn't get a chance. Uh Uh-oh, if God chooses, well, okay. That actually makes me sleep better with our miscarriage. Number three, God can save those who have limited mental ability. If the answer is you need to understand everything and make a decision, well, what if, what if you can't? What if, what if God could still choose you? 
There's gonna be some bad people, some unborn people, and some challenged people in heaven. Not good people, loved people, chosen people. In love too, God can reach the unreached. People always ask, what about those that have never heard? Well, let me tell you this. You don't go to hell because you never heard. You go to hell because you sinned, okay? Don't start with everybody in heaven and then figure out why some didn't make it. Start with everybody in hell and wonder why some made it out. And my point is, how do we know who's heard and not heard? God could send an angel. He could send a dream. God could just pick somebody. God could do like one of the benefits of being God, you do what you want. That's just like a total bonus. Right now in closed Muslim countries, there are mass conversions of former um, worshipers of a, a demon God named Allah. And they're having a dream, they go to bed and they stand before a guy named Jesus at the judgment seat and they convert to Christianity because of a dream. That's going on right now across the Muslim world. So you know what? Let God choose. That's what I say. And let me say this, do you get to pick who goes to your house? I get to pick who goes to my house. Why doesn't God get to pick who goes to his house? If it's the father's house, doesn't the father get to decide who comes in? That makes sense to me. I have some Arminians showed up at my house, said, we voted and we get to live with you. I'd be like, I'm reformed, you don't. Um, <laughs> you don't, it's my house. Your vote don't count. One vote counts. You're predestined before the foundations of the world not to live at my house. <laughs> In addition, if God chooses, God can sometimes reach the worst people. Who's the guy writing this? Saul, Paul, religious terrorist. If a Hussein married a bin Laden, they would have called him Saul. That's that guy. He's a bad dude. He doesn't pick God, God picks him. He doesn't look for God, God looks for him. Let me just say this, you could disagree with me. I love you, you're wrong. You may have been predestined to be wrong, I don't know. <laughs> so I don't wanna judge you. But even when I tell my testimony, I don't say, I was looking for God and I found God and when I chose God, I said, God was looking for me and when God found me and when God saved me. You know what, if on the news, some guy's pulled out of a burning building. I don't want him to be on the camera saying, let me tell you how I got myself out. I want him to point at the firefighter and say, thanks. Right? I mean, you're saved by God. You're saved from God. You're saved to God. You are saved for God. That's why Jonah says salvation is of the Lord. And sometimes God could pick people, you're like, I can't believe God picked that guy. I mean, I know that's exactly what your wife is thinking right now. <laughs> How many of you, you've seen people get saved and you're like, did not see that coming. This is definitely by grace. They don't even have pants on and they met Jesus. <laughs> She's in clear heels and so's he. Like, and they got picked, that's crazy, <laughs> right? <laughs> The new people are not sure if they're allowed to laugh. They're not, you see, they're, they're all like, ah, ah, we exercise your free will, laugh all you want. Okay. Because you know what? God is not obligated to save anyone. 
And it is an amazing thing that God would save anyone, okay? And so he then quotes Isaiah and their thought was, if God worked through the Jewish people to bring us Jesus as the savior from the Jewish nation to the nations, if all the Jewish people didn't love Jesus, did God's word fail? He quotes Isaiah and there in Isaiah, he distinguishes between physical and spiritual Israel, the physical descendants of Abraham, the spiritual descendants, those who were born physically, those who were born again spiritually. How many of you, you know, you were born into a Christian home, but you had to be born again as a Christian. Okay. This was my error as a young man. I was born into a church going home. My mom loved the Lord and was filled with the spirit. I didn't. So people ask, were you a Christian? Like I was born in a Christian home, but yeah, but were you born again in Christ? It's fine to be born into a Christian family, but you need to be born again into God's family. The physical birth, it was a total blessing, but without the spiritual birth, there wouldn't be an eternal blessing. And what he's saying is there there are people who are with God's people, but they're not spiritually one of God's people. And he calls it a remnant. Now here's the good news. God keeps a remnant. There's always believers somewhere. Doesn't matter how dark it gets. It's amazing. You can find God's people. There's always a remnant left somewhere. And then lastly, he says, uh, as Isaiah predicted, uh, if God had not done his work, we would have been like Sodom and been like Gomorrah. What he's saying is this, apart from God's mercy, apart from God's love, apart from God choosing to save some, we all would be destroyed. And he uses the analogy of Sodom and Gomorrah. So we'll talk about it. We've got nothing else to do. Um, Our culture now thinks that Sodom and Gomorrah was right and God was wrong. Uh, Billy Graham, it was attributed to him, it's debated whether it was he or his wife, but said, uh, if God does not judge the United States of America, he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. Okay? And this is from Genesis 19. It's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, two neighboring towns. These two neighboring towns, they had a litany of sins and rebellion. And it was a counterfeit, just like Egypt, trying to make heaven on earth without God and trying to have anarchy replace order. In addition to their many sins, one of their prominent, predominant sins was sexual sin. These were naughty people. See, and what happens in our day, even some Christians be like, well, yeah, it's very, very naughty. They had harems and polygamy. We do on our phones. We do on our computers, we do on our tablets. We collect harems. We just don't have the decency to actually date or marry those people, but we do collect our digital harems. So we're not in a moral high ground to judge the naughty people in the Old Testament. We found a way to take the naughtiness and make it global. So things get so bad in Sodom and Gomorrah. The rebellion is so bad and the sexual dysfunction is so bad, God sends down two angels. Think of it like a covert mission, military operation. And it says in Hebrews that some have entertained angels unaware because when angels come on mission, though they are spiritual beings, they'll take on appearance of physical form and they'll just blend in. In the same way, if you're a soldier on a covert operation sent into a foreign nation, you're gonna present yourself in such a way they just kind of blend in, nobody knows it's you. So the angels come and they come on an investigation and they come as men. They show up in town, the men in town see that there's two new guys and they decide we need to have sex with them. 
Now, all of the scholars educated beyond their intelligence will interpret this differently. And all these alphabet soup denominations, the LGBTQ, whatever it is this week, they will interpret this differently. But I'll just read to you what it says in Genesis 19.5. The guys in the city see the two new guys show up. They're like, there's two guys we haven't slept with. They come, they surround Lot's house. He's the believer. He gets that name because he's got a lot of problems. That's Lot. We might start Genesis in the fall. He's a problem, but God chooses him by grace, not because of works. They surround his house. Where are the two men? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. That's what they say. What happens then is those who think that Sodom and Gomorrah were right and God is wrong, they'll say, oh, it wasn't about sex. It was, it was in hospitality in the Eastern world. If you didn't welcome someone, it was a great offense. I would say this, if I knock on your door and you don't answer and God sends Rotar from heaven and destroys the whole city, it feels a bit like an overreaction, <laughs> right? True? What they're asking for is either sexual activity or sexual assault, cooperative or non-cooperative. Lot, the believer, the one believer living in Sodom and Gomorrah, question, should he be in Sodom and Gomorrah? No. No, this is like a homeschool family on the Vegas Strip. (laughs) I just thought of that. exactly like that. (laughs) There's not enough hand sanitizer to fix all this. So he's homeschooling his kids on the Vegas Strip between the two cabarets. The guys show up and they're like, hey, send the guys out. Send the guys out. So here's what Lot does. He says, no, 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 I'll send my daughters. Anybody have daughters? Anybody just have a murderous thought? (laughs) Same question. You guys want to assault somebody? How about my daughters? Okay. See, if you look at this story, you're like, well, God picked the good people. Uh, No. There's only bad people. There's bad people who get grace and there's bad people who get justice, but it's just bad people. God doesn't want his daughters to go into harm's way. As a dad, I can't even believe this. I I mean, I I can't even, my whole life has been devoted to protecting my daughters from this kind of harm. What happens then is um, God blinds the blind perverts. They're spiritually blind. He makes them physically blind. Now they can't do anything. God gets involved. God spares. Lot and his family stay there. How many of you at this point be like, we're moving? (laughs) See, some of you are from California. Welcome. (laughs) Okay, welcome. (laughs) Welcome. Two things you need to know. We love you and you're not allowed to vote. (laughs) Okay. Okay. That was pretty unanimous. Uh, (laughs) So (laughs) 
All the people with California plates now are gonna park down the street and walk. Like, I'm not parking on that lot. Lot and his family are still there. They wake up the next day and God is like, I'm done. My mercy, my patience, my compassion is done. We're done with this. I am destroying everyone and everything in Sodom and Gomorrah. He's done. The day is coming for all the nations of the earth. The day is coming for all the citizens of the earth. And so ultimately what God does, he then takes um, Lot and his family and he ushers them out of town. God is like, you got to go, go now, go now. What does Lot's wife do? She looks back. Some of you, God has delivered you from the spirit of Sodom and Gomorrah and you keep looking back. Like, oh, I miss the drinking, I miss the sex, I miss the gambling, I miss the anger, I, I miss the rebellion, I, I miss the selfishness. No, you don't. Don't look back, because if you look back, ultimately your heart wants to go back. If God has delivered you, don't turn around. Jesus says, it's like a armor. When you put your hand to the plow, don't look back. Just keep plowing forward, whatever God would have for your future. Some of you need to delete some stuff from social media. Some of you need to cancel some former relationships. Some of you need to cancel some former commitments. Because for you, those are just ways of looking back. And if you've met Jesus, I, I tell you, one of the best things you can do anymore is just delete some things on social media and say, you know what? I'm not gonna look at that because that's back. I'm going forward. She looks back. She turns into a pillar of salt, salt. She's done, she's done. God then delivers them. And we read this in Genesis 19, 24. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So the heavens open up, literally flaming road tar by the ton comes flying from the presence of God and literally asphalts everyone and everything in Sodom and Gomorrah. And what he's saying is that's what everyone deserves. And some of us like Lot and his family, we got delivered and it was a miracle. And two things we shouldn't do, we shouldn't look back. And number two, we shouldn't judge God. Instead, we should thank God that we got delivered. Because had we been buried in the flaming road tar, that would have been justice and that would have been fair. Instead, the justice went to the cross of Jesus so that we could get grace instead of justice and fairness. Let me close um, while the band comes up with two scriptures. Jude 7 speaks of Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's a big debate on Sodom and Gomorrah. There shouldn't be. Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. People today be like, no, 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 it's not perversion, it's spectrum. Just because Satan has a thesaurus doesn't mean he's right. Well, no, 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 they're just choosing. No, 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 God chose. God chose gender, God chose sexuality, God chose marriage, God chose. You're like, well, I'm gonna choose. What you're saying is God chose wrong and you're gonna make God repent and you're gonna recreate yourself as your new creator and Lord. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Here's the... See, just like God going to Pharaoh 10 times, I'm telling you, 
or speaking to Pharaoh 10 times, I should say, through Moses. Now, th- there is a problem, it's gonna get worse. Time is short, I, I will forgive you. I, I, am a, I am a forgiving God, I, I'll do this. But eventually, it's just destruction. And it says this in 2 Peter 2, 6 and 9, by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And then he says this, I love this line, the Lord knows how to rescue. Let me tell you this, the world is coming to an end. The nations will be judged. The heavens will be opened. The ashes will be burning. The rotar will be flying. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords will be coming. And here's the good news. If you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, you are rescued from sin. You are rescued from death. You are rescued from hell. You are rescued from the wrath of God. That you are loved and adopted and forgiven as a child of God. That this is as close to hell as you will ever be. And God has an eternity that is awaiting you. And I'm telling you, we have something to look forward to. We have someone to look forward to. And right now, what we're not gonna do, we're not gonna look back, we're not gonna go back, we're gonna look up until he comes down. And God's children in the book of Exodus, they were set free for one reason, to worship God. And that's what we're gonna do right now.